You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-6 through 6. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. That's good. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to talk, and then we'll get into that passage. Some of you guys who were paying attention are like, what are we reading today? Uh, the other people who are walking around have no idea what they just missed in that verse. Um, so actually, when I, told, I asked Jenna to read the passage, even this morning, she's like, she came to me, she's like, you know what that verse says, right? I'm like, yeah, I got to preach on it today. <laughs> I, I know what it says. For any visitors here, we're, we go through a book of the Bible. Um, that's what we're doing right now, unless God says something otherwise to me. And it seems like every time we go through a book of the Bible, God is saying to us what we need to hear at that right time. So uh, that's what we're going through. We're going through 1 Corinthians, which is a book written to the church in Corinth, which is a bunch of new believers, about 100 people in that church most likely. It wasn't a huge church, but it was in a very well-known city, a very thriving Greek, philosophical, very educated type of town. Uh, but it's a new church started by Paul, and they are a mess. So that's what we're looking at. Uh, before I get into that text, let me say uh, a few thoughts regarding last week. Jared preached with us last week. The last passage talks about this idea, this fleeing sexual immorality, and then it lists a bunch of sins, and it goes through all these different sexual sins, different types of sins, and people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. What does that look like? And Jared spoke about how we have this freedom now in Christ, but because of freedom, we choose to live as slaves as righteousness. You guys ringing a bell? Remember this? Um, and let, let me tell you a story. Okay, So a few weeks ago, um, it was, I think, a Saturday or something like that. Actually, what was the last holiday? Labor Day? Memorial Day? One of those dates? Memorial Day, that's it. Um, we were hanging out at Ben and Crystal's house, my wife and I, and all of a sudden, Crystal and Ashley decided to that we had to go to the Jessup Carnival. And uh, Ben and I were like, this is awful. I do not want to go to a carnival. There's any, any ride that's put together in less than 24 hours, I am not riding, just so you know. Um, but we decided to go anyway because our wives wanted funnel cake and stuff like that, and it'll be a fun time. We get there, and it starts downpouring. It's not a fun time. Um, but I'm hungry at this point because it's dinner time, and I'm like, I'm going to eat something. And the only place left open really was either funnel cakes, deep fried Oreos, or a cheesesteak. And like this cheesesteak place had the biggest banners I've ever seen for like the world's greatest cheesesteak. That's what you would think. And so anybody go to the Jessup Carnival? No? Okay, a few people. So this massive cheesesteak sign, right? And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get a cheesesteak. Sounds good. Let's get a cheesesteak. Spend $8 and like 50 cents or whatever it was on a cheesesteak. Let me tell you, it was the worst investment of my entire life. I sat there with cardboard bread and coal. We, apparently, we realized later that the guy who was, like, manning it, he had, a, 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 like, a bucket of, like, crumbled up cheesesteak meat. And that's what he pulled mine out of. 
And then a couple minutes later, I'm like eating this disgusting sandwich because I paid $8.50 for it. And I see him, Ben and I recognize the grill wasn't even lit. So like, who knows how long that sat there cold. It was gross. And I'm like eating this, telling them how disgusting this is, but I'm eating it anyway, right? <laughs> like an idiot. I'm just like, I don't know, this is gross. Worst thing ever. And so I ate this thing, I feel miserable, and I don't feel satisfied, right? Do you ever eat something that you didn't really want and you still want something else, even though you're not hungry? And Ben's hungry, and Ben's like, I'm not eating anything here. So after a long debate, we end up going to the Greek place uh, in Dixon City, which is amer- amazing. It's, it's awesome. So we get a euro, or a gyro, as I used to call it until I was educated on that. Apparently it's euro, even though it starts with a G. I don't understand. But anyway, so we, I get a euro there, right? Which usually is enough for a meal by itself. And I eat the whole euro because it's delicious. And I go home and I feel sick because I had a really disgusting cheesesteak and an amazing euro to satisfy me. I regretted my purchase of that cheesesteak. I regretted eating it. But my regret cannot take that purchase away. It can't remove what I just did. Make sense? How many of us, whether it's a, a big purchase or something we did in life, or like, I wish that would not have happened. Like, please, somehow let me go back in time and re- erase that whole thing, whatever it was. And I, I know that's kind of a silly example, but I read recently, I was studying this, this passage, the end of the last chapter says this, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The passage, we're talking about sexual immorality and, and, and all these things, and, and Jared was talking about grace and how it covers all these sins, and so technically we could do what we want, but we were bought with a price, so we should do things that glorify God, right? You and I can never stop being somebody who's been bought with a price. That's done. You have been bought with a price. You can't, go, you can't do something to fix that, to say, no, I'm going to buy myself back. I will buy my own self, and I will negate what Christ has already accomplished on the cross. Once we've come to faith in Christ, we've received that gift, and we can't undo it, right? So you've been bought with a price. So therefore, even though there's this freedom of grace, I should do the things that lead to a life of glorifying the Father. Let me, let me say this. If I would have just ate the euro, right, I would have felt pretty awesome. I would be like, that was an amazing meal. Except for the breath afterwards. It's pretty, pretty kicking. Something in the sauce, a little bit of onions. It's a lot. You regret that. But it tasted amazing, and I felt okay. But because I've done that action, this cheesesteak, I felt like death. And I know that's silly, but in our life, we're covered in grace, and there are certain actions that you and I can do. We're allowed to eat the cheesesteak. You're allowed to, but you will feel like death afterwards, and it'll produce death around you. It's just going to happen. You might get sick. You might throw up on the person beside you. I've done that before with an ex-girlfriend driving in a car. That was gross. Anyway, that's a story for another time. Um, Like I said, ex-girlfriend for for reasons. I threw up on her. Anyway, um, so like that's chapter 6. We're coming out of this where he's talking about grace. What does it look like to live the life that we're purchased now. And then Jenna reads this. Now concerning matters of which you wrote. The church here is curious. 
about what should their relationships look like then, now that they're in Christ. They have sent him some kind of letter asking questions, and he say, let's address marriages. What should this look like? What should your relationships look like? And then he says this quote. If you look in your Bible or on the screen, there's actual quotation marks. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the end of the quotes. So if you'd stop there, you would think, Paul says, we can't have sex. That's what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He goes on to talk about, in that culture, there was a popular saying, a popular actual slogan that basically said, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Or to not have a woman. That's actually what it said. It's good for a man to not have a woman. Which basically meant to that culture, it's better for us spiritually to not have sex. Especially with prostitutes. Because there was temple, pagan, prostitution. I know, this is getting chaotic and confusing, and there's a lot of things culturally happening here. Happening here, But we have to recognize that. He is saying, yeah, 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 you're right. It's good for a man to not just have sex. It's, that's good. But let's look at the rest of this. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband, and it goes into this whole thing. See, there were some philosophies happening at that time, and I just said about that quote. There were some philosophies that were actually saying, you can become personally holy if you completely abstain from sex outside of marriage and inside of marriage. Both. So if you're married and you keep yourself celibate, you have somehow arrived spiritually. You're more spiritually holier than you used to be. And if you're not married and you keep, stay away from sex, you're holier. And so it's kind of this like sex is evil. The flesh is evil spirituality and, and self, self-sacrifice and, and whatever is, is more spiritually enlightened. Make sense? You guys tracking me? And he's saying, I half agree with this. Celibacy, though, outside of marriage is good. It's really good for you. That's what we should do to produce life. Celibacy inside a marriage is absolutely harmful. Absolutely harmful for you. See, we talked about this the last few weeks. There's not, we cannot divorce the flesh and the spiritual as if they are both evil things. God created us to be flesh, correct? He created sex drives. This might be a really uncomfortable conversation for some of you guys today. Like, is he really going to go and talk about sex today? Yes, I am. I, so some of you guys are like, oh, I'm getting out my notes today. The other guys are sinking in your seat. Like, I don't like this at all. So sorry. It's just what the Bible says and it's what we're going to get into. Sex in marriage is awesome, and God has created the flesh, U.S. flesh, and he has created U.S. spirit. And the two worlds are not opposed to each other unless we live in what we call sin, slavery to sin. What is sin? So some of you guys who are new here might be like struggling, and I know this is not a popular term today, is sin. People don't like the word sin. A generation ago, sin was something we all cognitively understood. Today, it's kind of this ambiguous, like, eh, it doesn't really mean anything anymore. We can do whatever we want. Sin. Why, so why is sex outside of marriage sin? What, what, what does this look like? I heard a, a pastor recently, um, actually Tim Keller, he was asked about homosexuality and his beliefs on that. And he said, first we've got to look at what is sin? What, is, what defines sin? And he said, when you see God create 
the world, he creates it with a specific order that produces life. And so when we do these behaviors, it produces life physically for ourselves and spiritually and physically for those around us. Make sense? But when we live in sin, everything that we do that's sin, what does it say? What does scripture say? The wages of sin is death. So things that are sin are really things that go outside of the way that God has structured the earth and us as humans to behave, and it produces death. So when you look at sex outside of marriage, it produces death. Let me explain. Have you ever met a couple who was kept themselves, they were abstinent, and they got married, and they were committed only to each other, and they loved one another, and all of a sudden they're having STDs, and they were like having all these regrets, and anxieties, and all, no, you don't, but how many times have you known somebody, or you yourselves live in regret from sexual encounters from the past, sexually transmitted diseases, or relationship issues, broken hearts, and emotional scarring, Let's just be real. Pornography is sin, and pornography is medically known to cause erectile dysfunction. It's known. It causes issues sexually. Does that sound like something that leads to life? Tim Keller talks about the, the idea of homosexuality, and he says, look, can man and man, man, and man produce offspring? No. Can woman and woman produce offspring? No. God has created us as people to live in this world to do things that produce life. Not saying if you're a man and a woman and you don't have babies, you're in sin. That's not what I'm saying at all. Don't, don't misquote me there. But everything that we do should bring life and bring wholeness to ourselves and to others around us. So well, we got to get rid of like God's trying to control me. God's trying to make me do the things I don't want to do. That's not what it is about at all. It's really about living a full life and not having brokenness be a part of it. Holiness, or not sinning, is not about rule-keeping. It's about the abundant life, and that is what God has asked for us to live. So the next verse here. Really strange for its time. I think today it's not so strange, but for, for its time it is. Because of verse, that's verse 2. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the, hu- the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What is that saying? In that culture, that was completely unheard of to say that a woman had sexual rights to her husband. In that culture, the man had all the rights. The man does what he wants to do. But now, Paul is the ultimate feminist coming out saying, no, no, you both have rights to each other. You are together one flesh. It's not about one dominating over the other, demanding his own way all the time. It's the two of you living out this body that God has made you live out, this union that he's called you to. Some of you guys are pretending to sleep right now, like you're not even interested at all. This is the ultimate woman's rights here. It's saying you have a voice. You have rights to your husband. The two are one, not one constantly lording over the other, demanding his own sexual way, using you for your body, and that's it. 
This is saying you both have a voice in this thing. You both have desires, and that is good. It's good. This verse is not turning spouses into sexual slaves for each other, though. But it makes sex regular, and it makes it not about one person. This verse does not mean that as a husband you can walk around and say, Bible says you can't, you can't deny me my rights. That's not what this is either. Like it's, it's like one in the morning. Uh, I get to pick. I get to do what I That's not what this is saying either, all right? This marriage really is sacrifice. It's giving of yourselves for the other. This passage is basically telling us sex in a marriage should be regular. Why? Verse number five. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by an agreed uh, agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The reason that sex should be regular in a marriage is so that we don't give the enemy room to divide a couple and to cause sin and to cause us looking for some kind of satisfaction outside of the relationship. The two are supposed to be one. They're supposed to experience that perfect unity that the Trinity has, that God represents to us. Flesh should be, the two should be one. And so when we withhold it, and he, and he even says, he's like, yeah, maybe you guys want to spend some time in prayer and, and fast that for a little bit, but then put an end to it. Don't, this should not be like some long, like, like the one spouse is like, uh, I'm fasting right now, babe. I, I can't do it. I can't. That's not what this is either. This should be an agreed upon thing. The two of you, if you're married, you should be growing spiritually together at the same time. You should be provoking one another to spiritual growth. Verse 5 says that marriage or married people who don't engage in secular relations are in danger of temptation toward immoral relations somewhere else. Basically, the Bible says if you're married, go to town. Have fun. <laughs> Nobody laughs at all or smiles. They're like, am I allowed to laugh at sex in church? Yes, in City Lights Church you are. You are allowed to smile. It's okay. The Bible says if you're married, do it. That's great. There you go. Put that on the bumper sticker. The Bible says do it. Let me say this. Because basically what Paul's writing, he, he says, this is my advice to you. He, he starts off with saying, hey, you got questions? I'm giving you advice. Here's my advice. Let me give you my personal advice to you. Married couples or people who desire to be married one day. Two things to help your marriage. If you're struggling in your marriage right now, let me give you two things you can do. One, start being spiritually intimate. That means praying together, reading the Bible together. It's hard to find a couple who reads together, goes to church together, worships together, prays together, fasts together, who are struggling as a couple. I, I have not heard of one yet that does all those things and are spiritually intimate and are falling apart. I have not met that yet. Number two, be physically intimate. I heard of a church that challenged their people to have sex every day for a week. I won't do that right now. But I would encourage you, sex should be regular in your marriages. Be spiritually intimate, physically intimate, if you are married. That way, there can be no place for the enemy to grab a hold and cause you to be selfish or like one more spiritually mature than the other and think, like, you guys get what I'm saying? Do I have to go any further on that? Okay, good. 
Verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What does that mean? I wish that you were all like me. That's not Paul saying, I think I'm the coolest guy on earth, be just like me. He's saying, I'm single. We don't really know. Paul may have been a, a widower. We, he, his wife may have been an unbeliever who left him, or he may have just been single his whole life. We don't really know, but we do know that he's single at this moment, and through his ministry, he is single. So Paul says, hey, this isn't a command, but this is, this is kind of how I like it. <laughs> I'm single right now. This is my gift. He says, we all have our own gifts. Your gift could be marriage. Your gift could be singlehood, singleness, whatever that word is. It could be celibacy or it could be marriage. Whatever your gift is. Your current situation, I want to say this to everybody here. Your current situation, single, married, engaged, hopeful, whatever. Your current situation is a gift from God right now. It's not a curse. It's not a trial. It's not something you have to push through. God has gifted you with this situation, and he is faithful. He's a good father. I was talking, I don't know if I said this in front of the pulpit or just in a group, but God is a good father, and he withholds no good thing from his kids. There's not like one day God will give me good gifts. You are currently living in the good gifts that God has chosen to give you. He's not withholding something. So if you are single right now, then choose to view it as a gift. If you are married, you better view it as a gift. Your spouse is a gift. He says this, though, verse 8. Let's read the rest here, and then we'll talk. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What is he saying? For us people who are so-called theologians or like we grew up in the church, there is some weird stuff in this passage. <laughs> Looking at this verse, what is this all about? So first let's talk about remaining single I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> Basically, Paul hits that really hard a little bit later. Two weeks from now, we'll talk about this whole life of, of being a widow or a widower and remaining single. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But verse 9 says that 
if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So often, what we have seen, or I have seen, is this idea that if you can't control your, your feelings and your passions, you better get married because that's somehow less of a sin than if you were just single and just on fire for Jesus, right? You guys get, like somehow being married and sexual is somehow less spiritual. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying you need to know your own heart. Is the gospel so alive in you that that's all that you need and there's no sexual temptations? There's nothing that you need a wife for or a husband for, that it's simply you and Jesus and that's the way you prefer it. If that's you, awesome. Then just go on fire for Jesus. You've got no limitations. If not, awesome. Get married and pursue Jesus together and don't give room to sin. There's not like some kind of spiritual like scale, married versus unmarried, one's more spiritual than the other. Does that make sense? I hope you're getting this this morning. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying, here's my advice. In this passage, I'm going to try to sum up these things here that he hits on. He hits on a good bit of things. One is God never desires divorce. That's not his desire. It won't make you more spiritually elite if you separate. What he's talking to here is you have a new church, and there are some men who have found faith in Christ and their wives haven't. And there are some women who have placed faith in Christ and their, wives, or their husbands haven't. And he's telling them, look, your questions about what to do with your spouse, stay married. You don't need to divorce them to somehow be pure. You could lead them to faith, is what he says. You could lead your spouse to faith. So stay married. In, when, when, when this culture is hearing these words about this new righteousness in Christ, when you think of righteousness, you think of absence of anything that's unrighteous, right? Or purity. Let's look at the word purity. So, for me to stay pure, alright, how many of you guys have seen this illustration? You got a, a glass of water, and somebody puts a drop of, of some kind of dye in it, and then they shake it around, and now it's another color, and they're like, that dye was sin, and we put a little sin in there, the whole thing is dirty, or how many of you heard the, you know, the other illustration where it's talking about, somebody's like, you know, what if we put a little bit of fecal matter in there? Are you going to drink it? No. That's sin. The whole thing's sin. Let me say this. Partly I can understand that. But at the same time, the gospel is something completely different. Jesus didn't run from the lepers. He ran to them. Jesus didn't hide from the prostitutes. He sat down with them. The gospel says this. If you are righteous and pure in Christ, you go into darkness and the darkness flees. So if you're married and you're in Christ, and your husband or your wife's not, you don't run from them and divorce them so that you can stay pure. You let your light shine in that house. That's what he is saying here. Your whole idea of purity is mixed up, and let me show you what it really is. It's you living the kingdom in your house. That's purity. Don't worry about if they are a believer yet or not. Maybe they will be. Christ invades darkness. He doesn't hide from it. So then you get to this other verse, verse 14, which is the one that kind of like you scratch your head at. What does it mean? Verse 14 says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is they are holy. 
whoa, so are you saying if I'm married and my spouse is an unbeliever, she automatically is holy and gets to heaven? Is that what it's saying? And like, that's what it sounds like when you just read it straight through. That word holy is actually, they, Paul uses it a few other times in this book. And every time it has to do with out of the pagan influence and under the influence of the kingdom of heaven. So he's not saying that because you are married, your spouse goes to heaven or your kids go to heaven and they are righteous before God. He is saying that they are under God's love, an environment of peace, an environment of grace, an environment of the kingdom, not an environment of pagan idolatry, witchcraft, sexual immorality, greed, whatever. They are under, they're in your house, they're under that radiating light of the kingdom. Make sense? So now, if you are representing the kingdom of God, they're in a holy atmosphere. Your kids now are living in a holy environment. They're no longer under pagan ways. They're under the holy kingdom ways. Okay, I hope we're tracking here. I know this is a lot to take in. This is the same term that's used in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6. Out of the pagan environment, under the influence of heaven, into a household of love and light. We see throughout Scripture that salvation is a personal faith. It's a personal decision. In no way is this advocating for, like, some kind of other form of salvation. That salvation through relation. I remember uh, as a kid, there's a, there's a play that would come to my church every year. I think it's come to this area before. It's a very evangel- evangelical play. Uh, it's called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, okay, if you've ever heard of it. But there's this one scene, and I was actually, the first year I was, I, I was, the guys would come to the church, and you would sign up, and you would audition to be in it. And the first year, I was the son and the father-son scene, okay? So I had this dad, this guy who played my dad, and we were coming home from my basketball game, and I had just shot, like, the winning shot, which is completely ridiculous, because I'm awful at basketball. Um, they would, literally, when I played basketball, as in, in, not in, on a team, always a recess because I couldn't make the team. They would call me Tank when I played basketball because their advice was, hey, just shoot the square, hit the square, and it'll go in. I would whip that ball. It would hit the square and bounce straight back. I'm like, your advice is junk. It's junk. Anyway, so I'm like talking to my dad on the stage, you know, pretending, and there's this one line I'm like, you know, but mom, mom's Christian. She goes to church, and my dad's like, you know, son, your mom has enough religion for the both of us. And then we get in a car accident, we die, and next thing you know, we're going to hell, and the devil comes out. He's like, thanks, Dad, we almost lost the boy, and he drags me into the pit. Anyway, it was, it was terrifying as a kid. Um, I remember being a kid watching this thing, sitting in the pews with my legs up, hoping a demon didn't crawl out from underneath of me. Like, what is happening? Some of you guys are laughing because you've seen the play, and you, you know. But it saved people, too. Some people have come to faith at this place. That's great. But um, I just remember being terrified. And, like, I know that line, you know, mom has enough religion for the both of us is kind of a silly thing to say. But the truth is, there are a lot of people who really believe that. Yeah. Like, religion is this thing that, like, is, if my family is Catholic, if my family goes, is a Baptist, if, if, my, if my grandfather has been on the board at this church, somehow, you know, my behavior is good enough. My, I'm not that bad of a guy, and I, 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 go to Chris, or I go to church on Christmas and Easter, that somehow I'm in. That's not what the gospel is at all. This verse is not advocating that mentality that somehow faith is like a, 
you know, we buy a, a family ticket. That's not the way it is. It's personal salvation for sure. But in my house, in your house, I hope there's a voice of the kingdom of God making your house a holy place to live. Even if a spouse or a child is running from God. Even if they are manifesting and displaying sinful behavior that's not a representation of God. I hope that they are in a place that they can see his love, his way on display. Does that make sense? Mom does not have enough religion for both of us, just so you know. So, wrapping up here. This series we've been calling 1 Corinthians, How Grace Puts the Pieces Together. Because this is a church that's just a mess. And in the same way, a lot of us are just a mess sometimes. And I, I know that when I preach this message, this makes people very uncomfortable. Because talking about sex, which is personal, we, it's talking about sin, which is personal, and we all have hurts from the past, things we've done or things that have been done to us. And we just don't want to talk about it. But let me say, grace puts the pieces back together. And we have to address this issue. We live in a culture like, like one we haven't really seen in American history, at least, that defines people by their sexuality. Right? Everybody's labeled by their sexuality. Hetero homo, transgender, whatever. There's always this label. And somehow that label is carrying a source of pride and identity like never before. That we've made our sexual preference a defining marker of who we are. And it's not really ever been the case. My sexuality should not be my defining thing about who I am. The category that I fall under. Instead, it should fall underneath my identity as a child of God, as a follower of Christ. That is my identity. That is who I am. That's the one title that I will let represent me as Christian, one who follows Christ, who wants to live as an ambassador to the kingdom of God. Sexuality is something that I put under that and let it fall in line with Scripture not be the overarching theme of like, this is who I am, this is what I do. And everything else falls underneath that. My faith, my theology, my relationships, my political views, that has to fall. No. All of those things fall underneath the Lordship of Christ. That's how, we, that's how we change our lives. That's how we can look at these things and say, you know what, I can live by this because I've been bought with the price. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is my identity. And everything that falls under life, or underneath that, I have to look. Does it produce the life that God has called me to or not? Does it produce his character? Does it produce what he has designed for me? So God desires, let me say this, God desires to redeem sexuality. What does that look like? First, it's forgiveness of the past. That's what it is. It's a blanket forgiveness on, under the covenant of grace of the sins of the past. Sexual or not. But you've got to realize, I am no longer who I once was. And my sins of even yesterday are forgotten under grace. Secondly, it's hope for the future. Grace puts the pieces back by giving us hope for the future. If you're single, 
that means you can live a full life single and for Jesus. If you're single and you desire sexual relationship, if you desire a, a spouse, that's good too. And it's hope for the future that God has got somebody for you. I know some of you are like, I, it sounds so cliche. I've heard it before. God is withholding no good thing from you. You might need, you might need to learn how to ask somebody out. You might need to learn some practical things to get a spouse for sure. Um, but God withholds no good thing. And there's hope for the future. I, how many of you guys have ever seen some real duds get some real winners for spouses, right? There is hope for the future. I've seen those. I'm one of those. I'm like, how did this happen? Like, but I have literally seen, like, I, I've, you ever go to a wedding and you're just like, this doesn't make any sense at all? Like, like how, how am I single and they're not? You, know, you guys know what I'm talking about. God withholds no good thing. He doesn't. He loves you. And grace puts the pieces together by saying, if you desire relationship or if you don't, there's hope for the future. There's good things for you. He's got eternity with you in mind. He knows what you were created for. He hasn't forgotten you. Grace puts the pieces together, forgives the past, gives you hope for the future, and strength for today. Some of you are like, yeah, I can believe for the future, but I'm struggling right now with isolation, depression, lust, whatever you want to put in that blank there. He gives strength through the day through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love that he says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He has given you a way of escape. Grace gives you strength for today. Grace forgives the past, gives hope for the future, and strength for the day. And I'm convinced that there are people in this room who need one of those things or all three of those things. Secondly, God wants to heal your marriage. If you're struggling as, as a couple, God desires your relationship to be strong. I encourage you to take the advice that I said earlier. Pray together. Read together. Have sex. Do it. That's the catchphrase. Just like Nike, do it. Just, just do it. God wants your marriages strong and healthy. He has never designed divorce for you. But he's good and he forgives it. And he is restoring things and giving you hope for today make sense? God wants to heal your marriage. And third, God wants your house to know and experience Him. Whatever your home is, if you have a, an unbelieving spouse, God wants your house to demonstrate His kingdom through you. I was talking to, um, can I just be real personal or real honest for a second? Not that Eddie, this has been not personal, I guess. Um, I was talking to a pastor friend, he's a really amazing guy, he was asking me, so what's City Lights like, what's, this, what's Scranton like, what's happening at the church? And I said, honestly, let me just, I'm just being honest with you, let me give you a, what I see for City Lights and for our, our city. When we moved there, everybody believed basically in the city, or at least that we came in contact with, that God hates them. Like, this post-Catholic kind of view of God's abstract and this place is a dump and life is awful, right? God hates us. I said, so we kind of went from that as a, as a church to, you know, God likes me and has forgiven me. And like, I feel like now we're at a place where we're, we, we most, most of us know, no, God loves me. 
God really does love me. But that's not the end of where we're going. God wants to take us to a place where we believe that God wants to use me and empower me. And so I feel like somebody in here needs to know that God wants to use you and empower you to see your spouse or your children or your father or your mother or somebody in your family, in your household, be under the glory of God, to become holy because you are holy, because he is holy, and they will become holy. Make sense? God wants to empower you to reach somebody in your family. No amens. So you guys all checked out the lunch already. That's good news. He didn't just die to save you and forgive you because he he didn't have to. He died to save you, forgive you, to empower you, to be his son and daughter, to live like a royal king, to live like an heir to the throne, to live like you are in heaven even though you're on earth. 